Sentire Media. Hello you. You're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 141. The Popes are back in business. 1417 to 1447. Well, we have sort of ignored our poor popes for a while now, mostly because they've been off in Avignon, and even when they did come back, they didn't really fully come back. We had the Western Schism, which was sorted out in a council in 1417, which saw the election of Pope Martin V. It was now time for Marty to roll up his sleeves and sort out his papal states. First of all, let's look exactly at what we're talking about when we say papal states in the early 15th century. They were the stretch of land which included Rome and surrounding areas and then headed diagonally northeast through Umbria and parts of Tuscany and the Marche area and parts of Romagna and Emilia. Since it covered this diagonal stretch, the borders were with the Kingdom of Naples to the south and east, Tuscany to the north and west, and Milan and Venice to the north. There were also a few papal enclaves outside of this area, which included the cities of Ponte Corvo, Benevento, and of course Avignon in France, as well as some other areas in Provence. For the sake of precision, I will give you the name of the six regions in which the state was officially divided, but you're allowed to forget them if you want. They were the March of Ancona, the Duchy of Spoleto, Romandiola, the Patrimonio di San Pietro in Tuscia, which was the bit in Tuscany, Tuscia being the antique name for Tuscany, Campania e Marittima, and Benevento. The northern Romagna area in particular had been taken over by a series of signori, local lords, who set up their own dynasties and power bases, such as, and again, you're allowed to forget the Alidosi in Imola, the Manfredi in Faenza, the Dapolenta in Ravenna, in Rimini, Cervia, Cesena, and other areas, the Malatesta. If we look specifically at the area around Rome, the lands there belonged to the great Roman baronial families with the Colonna and Orsini in the lead. Rome herself in the previous century had been predominantly governed by a senate, which was an expression of the main commercial forces in the city, particularly merchants connected to agriculture. In many other areas of the Papal States, it was outright anarchy. Pray for the mercenaries and members of factions that have been expelled from various cities. This is what Martin V inherited and had to deal with. Perhaps two of the main issues he had were the naughty and ever-rebellious Bologna, 
who had gone back to being a commune for a bit, as if they didn't know that the 12th and 13th centuries were finished. And of course, the fact that a mercenary captain become lord, Braccio da Montone, had set up a signoria for himself in the heart of the papal states, starting with Perugia. Luckily for Martin, things in Bologna weren't going that well, so they were open to a deal, as was Braccio, although neither he nor the Pope knew it would be a lasting one. No sooner had that happened than the government that had made the deal in Bologna fell and Anton Galeazzo Bentivoglio took power. The Bentivoglio family are prominent in the history of Bologna, and aside from suggesting that you do visit Bologna, of course, I would also recommend a visit to their castle out in the province, very originally named Castel Bentivoglio. Their name has a very sweet meaning, I care for you or I love you, which would have been rather ironic when they were hacking people up with swords, or, by now, shooting them with cannons. Anyway, Martin sent his new buddy, Braccio, to subdue Bologna, and a power-sharing agreement was once again reached with Mr. I Love You. Braccio da Montone in Umbria would cease to be a thorn in the Pope's side after the mercenary's death in 1424, as we have seen at the hands of Francesco Sforza. Perugia fell under direct control of the papacy, supported internally by the Baglioni family. Martin also dealt with some of the roaming bandits and brigands in a rather quick, albeit not really Christian way, by rounding them up and having their heads chopped off. When things were finally safe for him to get back to Rome around 1420, he also intervened in the local power balance, favouring the Colonna family, helping to expand and consolidate in exchange for their support and recognition and, well, of course, money. Speaking of which, the main point on Martin's agenda, once back in Rome, was cash and the papal finances, which were not good. When this very down-to-earth pope was accused of worrying more about finances than church reform, he supposedly answered, Without reform, the church has lasted 14 centuries. Without money, it will not last a week. For starters, with the papal infrastructure back in Rome, there were a lot of jobs going around. How did one go about getting one of these jobs? Well, you bought it. You paid up and you would get 11% back on your investment as a salary. Obviously, with the possibility of gaining advantages from the new position you occupied, making it worth your while. This made for a sort of civil service that would be loyal to the Pope and who also started to invest in their surroundings, helping to restore Rome and the bordering areas. The structure of the papal government, known as the Curia, was divided into various offices. The Chancellery, the Sacred Rota, the Penitenziaria, the Camera Segreta, which would eventually become the Apostolic Secretariat, and then there was the Camera Apostolica, the Apostolic Chamber, which was the biggie, because that was where the money was managed. With more money moving around, 
banks also started to move back to Rome, including, as we have seen, a branch of the Medici Bank, and it was to the Medici that the Apostolic Chamber would be assigned some years later. As far as taxes were concerned, each municipality would collect their own, usually on certain goods, trade tariffs, and certain commercial activities. And then the papacy from the municipality would collect the focatico, a word stemming from the Italian fuoco, fire, meaning half, and therefore the number of families in the municipality. This was not always updated, so the actual number of families in the municipality could be more or less, meaning that the Pope was either asking too much or not enough. Martin even found some time to start making Rome look pretty again by calling in artists such as Gentile da Fabriano, Pisanello and Masaccio to paint frescoes in Santa Maria Maggiore and the Lateran. By the time he died in 1431, Pope Martin V had managed to get some form of varying control with varying levels of stability over all of the papal states. The finances under control and even made friends with the neighbours, reaching agreements with the Visconti, Naples and Florence. This is the point in which we ask ourselves what could possibly go wrong and then finish the episode. But you're lucky this time and we get to find out what could possibly go wrong straight away. The balancing act achieved by Martin V did not last long under his successor, the Venetian Gabriele Consulmer, who took the name of Eugene IV. And you may actually remember about some of the things that went wrong with him from our episode on Amadeo VIII of Savoy, who became anti-Pope Felix V. Anti-Pope to whom? Well, Eugene IV, of course. But first things first. While Martin V had favoured the Colonna family, Eugene IV, who had been elected with the support of the Orsini, favoured them, and you can bet your bottom that the Colonna were not pleased at all. The Pope was able to deal quite a blow to the Colonna, even gaining a military victory thanks to the support of Naples, but never completely replaced the Colonna with the Orsini. This change of papal alliance also had a knock-on effect on other connections, for example, with the Colonna ally Guidantonio da Montefiltro of Urbino, who turned against the Pope. Eugene also thought it would be a good idea to meddle in Tuscany by siding with Florence, which annoyed Milan, who was supporting Siena against Florence. Milan sent two mercenary captains, Niccolò Fortebraccio and Francesco Sforza, to Rome. But the Pope managed to flip Sforza to his side, and Milan sent another army to join Fortebraccio. Meanwhile, the Colonna started a revolt in Rome, and Eugene was forced to flee by boat along the Tiber, first reaching Florence, and then eventually Bologna. The municipal forces in Rome now took back control of the city. Thanks to his friendship with Cosimo de' Medici, the Pope would eventually use his support to get warrior Cardinal Vitelleschi to first take back Rome in 1437 and then Umbria in 1439. The support of the Medici came with a price. 
for it is in this period they were put in charge of the apostolic chamber, and so the money of the papacy. Help also came from Venice, and the price for that was Ravenna, which fell into Venetian hands around this time. To this day, if you decide to visit Ravenna, you can see the building where the Venetians had their seat of power. Eugene would later fall out with the Medici, not before they had made themselves even richer, and not before Eugene got involved in the whole business of the Council of Basel, and, albeit temporarily, an end to the schism between the Eastern and Western churches. So, going back a bit. Ever since the Western schism had been solved in 1417, the Pope had been required periodically to call a council, so Eugene did in Basel on the 14th of December, 1441. Four days later, due to the council and Eugene not seeing eye to eye, especially since the Pope had not renewed some of the privileges of the council members, he issued a bull disbanding the council and ordering it to be reconvened in Bologna. Many council members refused and ordered Eugene to present himself to the council. Things escalated to the point that the council would eventually assume the authority of the papacy and declare a new pope in 1339, the aforementioned Felix V, Amadeo VIII of Savoy. The King of France at the time also took advantage of the situation to convene a meeting in which he decided that local clergy could elect their own representatives and the Pope could have no say in it and he'd just have to take it. A sort of early French version of the English church if this had gone on. However, in Eugene's darkest hour, hope came from an unexpected direction, namely the East. There, the Eastern Roman Emperor John VIII Paleologus was in serious trouble. His empire had been eaten up by the Ottoman Turks, and it seemed, and as we know it would be, only a matter of time before Constantinople itself fell. Paleologus thought it would be a good idea to seek the help of the West, and perhaps the way to do that was to start with healing the schism that had divided the Eastern and Western churches since the mid-11th century. Eugene jumped at the idea. His bet was that such a momentous event would by far overshadow his squabble with the Council of Basel. The council was started up in Ferrara, but had to be moved to Florence due to an outbreak of plague. The main bone of contention was a theological issue about the Holy Spirit. One side claimed that the Holy Spirit ex padre filioque procedit, meaning that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son, while the other side claimed that ex patre per filium procedit, that is, it proceeded from the Father through the Son, and not from the Father and the Son. What was the solution, you may ask? Well, they decided they were actually both saying the same thing. Those of you who have been following the podcast for a while will likely be able to guess now what the sketch at the end will be about. So, with this issue solved, 
Everybody was pleased and partied, and they even solved the issue of the supremacy of the Pope, with everybody agreeing to bow down to him while the Eastern Church was allowed to keep its privileges. You may be wondering, then, why the churches are not united today. Well, when the emperor and the patriarch went back home, the political and religious representatives there were not at all pleased and showed their displeasure in various ways which may or may not have included throwing poo at the returning delegation. In any case, the issue for Eugene IV was that the Pope that had seemed a goner had now triumphed. It would take a while, and Eugene would not see it all through, but by the time he died in 1447, he had managed to turn things around a bit. Not as peachy keen as they had been when he started, but he had managed to sort out some of his own major messes. What would his successor then do with the situation? Well, we'll see about that next time. Grazie mille. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks in particular to my wonderful Patreon supporters, starting with the second half of the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level. And they are Julia G, Justin E, Mary TH, Old John in Milwaukee, Orlando D, Kevin, Mark P, Marxist Leninist Sicilian, Mella, Michus Porchus, Mike M, Neville, Niels, Paradise, Patrizia Kappa, Philip B, Roberta D, Rod L, Rodney N, Rudy F, Scott L, Sean S, Shelby, Stephen, Tap Dance on Under, and Tio 5. And of course, the tippy-top Maria Montessori and Dante Ligieri level, Paolo, Lisa K, Andrew M, Peter W, Kevin O, David L, Rinat, David, Oak, JW, Sen, and David A. If, like them, you would like to have access to extra content and ad-free episodes, you can head over to patreon.com slash ahistoryofitaly or go to ahistoryofitaly.com to the support page and become a Patreon supporter today. If you are so inclined, remember you can also get in touch, hello at ahistoryofitaly.com, for questions, comments, or just to say hello, and you can also do so on social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Once again, grazie mille, thank you very much for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. Right, since we have managed to solve the main issue of the Holy Spirit on this great occasion, we are here to see if we can't solve some other minor matters that divide our church. First of all, pairs. So, the Eastern Church says that a pear is pear-shaped. That's right. And you say that a pear has the shape of a pear. Yes, Ridiculous! Shut up! You shut up! Let's calm down, please. I believe that in this case, 
you are also saying the same thing. Oh, I suppose that's going to be the solution for everything now. Well, tell me, what do you mean when you say that a pear is pear-shaped? Well, um, I mean that a pear has the shape of a pear. That is what I'm saying. It's a miracle. Truly, it is. Well, if you say so. Next point: socks. You believe that socks should be put on starting with the right. Blasphemy! How dare you? How dare you? Take a deep breath, both of you. Now, let's have a demonstration. Would you please face each other? I will, as long as we have no more of this blasphemous sock talk. Shush, shush, shush. Now. Could you put this pair of socks on, starting with the right? I can't watch this. My eyes, my eyes. Bear with me a sec. He is putting on his right sock first. Yet, as you observe him, is it not the sock to your left? <gasps> God be praised. Amen. Now. Let's look at the issue of pineapple on pizza. What? Oh yes, we haven't yet discovered pineapple nor tomatoes. Never mind, never mind. That will be a biggie. I don't know if we'll get through that one. Never mind. One last thing. What is this business with a great or big turnip or something? Sorry, no more time. Great session. Bye. Yeah. Bye bye. What strange people. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com. That's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com and find out how to submit your show.